the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season six of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thanks for tuning in to another deep dive into the world of the Grateful Dead. We're kicking off Season 6 with two episodes celebrating the 50th anniversary of what many deadheads consider to be one of the best shows the band ever played. August 27, 1972 found the band on stage at a benefit for the Springfield Creamery in Veneta, Oregon. Well documented in the film Sunshine Daydream, this show sports vintage 72 dead playing their hearts out for an enthusiastic crowd in scorching temperatures. Our website, dead.net slash deadcast, has extra materials for you to explore from this episode. Also at dead.net slash deadcast, all of our past episodes, including complete seasons one through five. And you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen where you like to listen. Also new for you to explore are transcripts for many of the episodes in seasons one through five. Head over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index and click the transcript link on the episode you'd like to explore. Thanks to everyone who has contributed their stories at stories.dead.net. A fair amount of you made it into the podcast, so thanks very much for your input. Were you at any of the Madison Square Garden shows in 81, 82, or 83? Well, if you were, we need your stories. Head over to stories.dead.net and record yours today. Speaking of MSG, boy, is there a cool new Grateful Dead box set heading our way. In and out of the garden, Madison Square Garden, 81, 82, 83, it boasts 17 CDs from six previously unreleased concerts recorded live in New York City at the famous Madison Square Garden between 81 and 83. Also available is Madison Square Garden, New York, New York, 3981, a three-CD set featuring one full show from the box. Both titles are available September 23rd and are available for pre-order now at dead.net. Also new to explore is the Grateful Dead server on Discord. Download the Discord app on your mobile device or computer and then search for the public Grateful Dead server and click the join button. Find the Deadcast channel and chat with fellow heads about the latest episode you just listened to. Jesse and I will pop on from time to time, so we'll see you there. It's summertime in August 1972. The monumentally successful Europe 72 tour is in the history books. The band is playing better than ever and gearing up for another tour in the U.S., but there are some friends in need of assistance up in Oregon. Get ready for a trip like no other to the Pacific Northwest. It's time to hand it off to Jesse Jarno. On August 27, 1972, two months and one day after the conclusion of the Grateful Dead's Europe 72 tour, the band performed what some dead freaks consider the most wonderful dead show of all time. 
Billed as a potluck picnic to benefit the Springfield Creamery, the dead performed three scorching sets at the old Renaissance Fairgrounds in Veneta, Oregon, on what is sometimes reported as the hottest day in state history. Rhino released the show as Sunshine Daydream in 2013, along with a proper version of the not-quite-lost but never-officially-released documentary of the same name. Here at the Deadcast, we're not generally in the business of unilaterally declaring anything to be the greatest Grateful Dead show of all time, let alone believing that such a thing even exists. But that's actually an irrelevant conversation for another day. 82772 is in a category of its own, and the music on tape is only part of the story. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. If I could go back in time to any moment in Grateful Dead history and see one Grateful Dead show, you got Cornell, you've got uh, the Fillmore West run, the Live Dad run in 69. But the one show, without a doubt, as much as I would like to see a small theater show, maybe at the Lyceum on 526-72, it would be Vanita. Oh, we'd sure like to thank the Springfield Creamery for making it possible for us to play out here in front of all you folks here and God and everybody. This is really where we get off the best. And please welcome to the Grateful Dead cast, a founding editor of both Dupree's Diamond News and the Deadhead's Taping Compendium, Johnny Dwork. While Cornell 77 or The Late Show from the Fillmore East at 213.70 might garner more votes as the people's favorite shows, having listened to pretty much every Grateful Dead tape in circulation, I've long held that the August 27th field trip is the most historically important, most culturally essential, and most experientially powerful Grateful Dead show in the band's long and deservedly legendary history. Personally, I also feel it's their finest performance, but of course, that's admittedly a, sub- a subjective opinion. I don't know, this may be the first time I've ever been to Oregon. It didn't rain, and now it's too damn hot. And that's partly because of the, the setting of it as well. The music, first and foremost, but the setting, Unbelievable. So that, to me, is the quintessential Grateful Dead experience. The field trip, which was really the last acid test collaboration with the Merry Pranksters, happened at a time in which, unlike the original acid tests, the band had matured, they were well-practiced, and they were performing at their technical and creative peak, very different than when they first started doing collaborations with the Pranksters. They had, just a few months earlier, come off their incredible tour of Europe 72, uh, which had them polishing to a gleaming shine many of the most beautiful, powerful, and widely acclaimed songs. The Grateful Dead and the Alembic Sound Crew returned from Europe in late May 1972 with multi-track recordings of their tour, a topic we delved into just a tiny bit last season. They spent June listening to the tapes and spent July starting to construct the overdubs for the November release of what would become a triple LP. The band played a half-dozen out-of-town shows, but by the end of the month were back in the Bay Area working on the live album. And that's where they were on July 31st, working on vocal overdubs for Truckin' and Cumberland Blues, when emissaries from the distant prankster territory of Eugene arrived. Their friends needed help. I gotta get down, I gotta get down, I gotta get down to take a 
take a few detours before we get to the August 1972 show in Vanita to really explore why a field in rural Oregon is sometimes more than a field in rural Oregon. It's a cliché to say that the Grateful Dead were somehow more than a rock band, but this show is material proof. The Grateful Dead had musical peers in the rock scene, but they consciously and actively existed on a far broader continuum than just rock bands. To understand the importance of the music made at the Springfield Creamery benefit, it's necessary to understand not only the history of the Springfield Creamery, but how it both grew from and became a transformative institution in the Pacific Northwest that would have an impact on mainstream American culture. And to talk about that, we need to talk about Ken Kesey. You may know Ken Kesey from such powerful novels as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Sometimes a Great Notion, or such psychedelic harasses as the Merry Pranksters, who hosted the acid tests in 1965 and 1966, where the dead served as house band. You only come to this movie once, and if you don't get something rewarding out of every minute you're sitting there, then you're blowing your ticket. Ken's brother Chuck was a prankster too, and we are thrilled beyond delight to welcome to the good old Grateful Dead cast from the Springfield Creamery, Chuck and Sue Kesey. I, I was a bad prankster because I had a full-time job that was pressing me every day. So my ability to get away from my job is really rare. Though the Kesey family name is often associated with Kool-Aid, the more appropriate beverage might actually be milk. Well, the creamery happened kind of just organically, even though we didn't know that word in 1960. Chuck's father had been involved in the creamery business all the time, forever. And Chuck grew up in a creamery. And uh, that's where we met was at Oregon State University. And we had an opportunity when we graduated. Chuck's father's creamery was looking for a, someone to package milk and glass gallon jugs, which was kind of a throwback to the early 50s at that point, because all the creameries that were in business in the late 50s, early 60s had kind of moved on to the modern things of paper cartons and so forth, and glass was not there. So we had, there was this uh, former creamery building in Springfield that was not occupied, and Chuck and his dad worked out a thing where we could set up a little processing plant. We would just package milk and gallon drugs and sell it to other creameries who wanted this product to distribute. In 1961, just after Ken Kesey sold the manuscript for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but before its publication, he returned to Springfield, Oregon, the town of his youth, and took a summer job at the Springfield Creamery. Ken did work for us while he was writing Great Notion or, or, and or Cuckoo's Nest. They were so close together, I can't remember it, with, but it was when they were living in Oregon for a bit. And that was in the early 60s, 61, 63. Yeah, and he was a great plant man. He was raised in a creamery too, you know, so it worked well. According to Rick Dodgson's splendid biography, It's All a Kind of Magic, the young Ken Kesey, the author also came with a supply of psychedelics liberated from the closet at the Veterans Hospital where he'd worked nights and written Cuckoo's Nest. The job didn't last long, and Brother Ken was soon working on Sometimes a Great Notion, inspired by his time back in the Northwest. In the summer of 1964, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters purchased the Harvester bus they named Further and drove to New York for the publication party of Sometimes a Great Notion, not to mention the World's Fair. Brother Chuck turns up in Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test. Did he take the summer off to join the Pranksters? Never. Never. He was gone 
Maybe two weeks, I think. Maybe this is one of the longest vacations I've ever had. Is <laughs> <laughs> the truth? True. This yeah. is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, uh, the creamery is very pressing. Two weeks getting there, but he flew back. I flew out and met them. And I was pregnant with Kit, with our son. So I didn't attempt the bus trip. And the acid tests, I went to most of them. I missed one. I went to the first one and took Cheryl, my daughter, who is five at the time. <laughs> and she, she and I went. She got into it early. And, uh, and, and all in all, we, she and I were the only ones that had not taken acid. And our job during the concert was to go around and give people ice cubes. And so we passed ice cubes out to the hard dancing hippies. The 60s unfolded and a funny thing happened. Yogurt. Yogurt! You've heard of it? I was recently doing some other dead-related research and came across an otherwise unrelated article that referred to the ethos of the 60s as peace, love, and yogurt. Fifty years later, it's maybe a little easy to forget why yogurt might be thought of as part of the psychedelic revolution. But the connection was due in no small part to the Kesey family. Initially, we only packaged gallons, and then we eventually started doing some home delivery on our own. And we also did uh, milk for the Springfield School District and the little half pint containers that went to the schools and every morning. And we ran that all through the 60s, all the way up until for almost 10 years. But Chuck really wanted to do cultured products. He wanted to do yogurt. This is what they had drilled into him at Oregon State. This was, this was a, the best of the best to do cultured products. So it was in the late 1960s that the Springfield Creamery got countercultural. Early in probiotic, before the word had been invented, and uh, we put in acidophilus, and our inspectors told us that we couldn't put it in there in yogurt. They said, this is illegal. And I realized that they didn't know how to test. <laughs> and I knew the right thing. I knew that I was supposed to put it in there. So we were pretty close to being the first people to do that. Uh, I'd been taught well at Oregon State in bacteriology, and I knew it was the right answer. Chuck's a great future looker, and this is what people wanted. They wanted real food that was really good for you. Please welcome to the Deadcast, Joshua Clark Davis author of the exceptional scholarly book published by Columbia University Press, From Head Shops to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Activist Entrepreneurs. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. It's yogurt, it's tofu, it's organic produce. If you go back to the 60s, I mean, if you think about the counterculture in a way, it's a rebellion against a dominant commercial culture, right? And I think... Organic food and vegetarianism all the way back in the 60s was itself a subculture that was rebelling against the larger commercial culture around food, around supermarkets, around uh, the A&Ps and the Safeways and so on. And it really began to blossom in places like New York on the East Coast, on the West Coast, Bay Area. 
especially the macrobiotic movement that was getting really big in the mid sixties, right before the counterculture was taking off. I hate to use this term synergy, but it's like the, the things that were happening between music, drugs, food, counterculture, it's all kind of clicking in right at that moment. And I, I think there's an argument that maybe like 1972 in some ways is kind of like maybe the biggest kind of last year for the counterculture. Obviously the counterculture goes on for decades, but as long as the war in Vietnam is still going and Nixon hasn't been reelected yet, there's some urgency there. What was then known as the health food business existed as one of the most successful outgrowths of the counterculture. But those associations came with a price. In From Head Shops to Whole Foods, Josh gets deep into the story of Erewhon Market. One of their earliest managers, Paul Hawken, went from the civil rights movement to San Francisco's Calliope Light Show to the health foods business. Erewhon, at their first store in Boston in 1966, they got raided by the FDA for, in the FDA's eyes, selling unlicensed health advice or kind of things that was bordering on unlicensed medical advice. So these businesses, it seems so unthreatening today, things like yogurt, tofu, organic produce, but they did threaten people in certain ways because that countercultural connotation was so strong, right? This is what freaks ate. This is what heads ate. This was not necessarily safe because you didn't know what those folks were also putting in their bodies, right? There was something else going on there that I think some people were very suspicious of. This is all part of the background to the event that would result in the Grateful Dead coming to play in Vanita, what is known in creamery lore as the apple wine incident when some employees wound up with a batch of apples and decided to try their hand at winemaking. I picked the yogurt at that time at about two in the morning. That's when the yogurt was ready and that's was my job. And I'd go to the creamery at two in the morning and walk through it. And usually I would find footprints of somebody that was in front of me and this was normal. And this time it went to the apple wine and pulled the plug and spilled 200 gallons of apple mash mash in the warehouse. Yeah, what a nightmare. Who would do that? But I could track them and I knew who I could tell by their footprint that they were wearing good shoes. So I shoveled it back in the vat because it couldn't drain. There was, was just on the floor and I shoveled it back in the vat. And so they had ruined it. And I thought, well, I can distill it. And I stretched a piece of plastic over the top of the vat and put a little coil on it and put a steam in it and went home. And at eight in the morning, I came back and it was full of cops, like 25 cops in the Eugene Register Guard. Our local newspaper had already gathered waiting for me to come. And they loved the story. It was so dynamic. And in the long run, I got fined $75 for doing it. But it knocked us out of our normal business cycle. Our reputation went down the the drain with the apples. The man was ready to go after the yogurt heads. It was no accident. They lied about what we were doing and how much we were doing. They subsequently lost their contract with the local schools. In 1970, 
The Springfield Creamery put their faith fully in yogurt. Yogurt! In 1970, the creamery launched perhaps its most famous product, Nancy's Honey Yogurt, named after Nancy Van Bresch Hamron. Nancy came to work for us in 1969. She had moved up to Oregon with her boyfriend, who was Mountain Girl's brother, <laughs> to stay at the farm while Ken and Faye and the kids had gone to England to hang out with the Beatles <laughs> for a while. As one does. We are just honored to welcome Nancy Hamron. Unlike Wavy Gravy, the nationally distributed food product named for her is actually good for you. I had been raised in the Bay Area, and then in the middle of my senior year in high school, we moved to Pasadena. So I lasted about a year and a half in Southern California. It was so different, you know, from the Bay Area, where there was jazz and beatniks and philosophical things going on, you know, that were of interest. So I moved back in 66, January 66, lived right over the top of the guys who were practicing that would become the Jefferson Airplane. Their, our apartment was right over there, so that was fun. And I was just a hippie in the Haight-Ashbury for two years. Nancy was quite literally a member of the Grateful Dead family. So when, when I lived with Gordon, we were in Marin County, and pretty close to where Mountain Girl and Jerry lived. So we'd go over and visit them in Larkspur and see Sunshine, this beautiful little curly blonde-haired girl. But the invitation came from the Keezys to hold down the farm. Gordon and I went, yeah, it's time to get out of California. <laughs> so we moved to Ken's farm and, and stayed there for six months. Learned how to feed animals and, and feed lots of people on brown rice and greens and uh, grow an organic garden and all that. You know, it was a great summer. And then Woodstock happened. And so they hired uh, the Keezy Farmsters to... Uh, load up some school buses and go back and help manage the backstage at Woodstock. I had been in San Francisco. We went endlessly to the dances, you know, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, everybody. We, it was such a great music scene, Grateful Dead, of course. And I just didn't want to ride on a school bus for 3,000 miles with a bunch of people I didn't really, would not normally <laughs> liked as friends, <laughs> shall we say, some people, some of them. Right. So uh, it turned out that that was a really good decision. So the the farm emptied and Ken came back from England and said, okay, the farm's closed now. It, it used to be, you know, it was a place where people could crash and there were parties and it was quite the fun farm event. <laughs> I was 22. I needed to find a direction in life. Nancy was there and she, well, she needed actually to make some money and we needed a bookkeeper because our bookkeeper had just was wanting to move on. And so we hired her. She came to the office. She didn't leave for 45 years. <laughs> Absolutely the best hire, one of the best hires we ever made. And, and so she was, this is when we were in this transition period of saying, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to, let's make yogurt. And Chuck wanted to make yogurt. They wanted to pivot to a new direction and find something that was unique and would benefit people. Honestly, we were looking to make everybody's gut better than it was. So I had been making yogurt at home. Nancy said, gosh, 
I can't find any good yogurt up here in, in Oregon at all. And this is what my grandma used to make. And he, she and Chuck worked together. They were great. And Chuck had knew what he wanted. And Nancy had a great palate as well. That's what became Nancy's Honey Yogurt. Chuck had sent away for some acidophilus and some yogurt cultures for me and started just perfecting it at home in glass gallon jars on the back of a stove in a water bath or half gallons, I guess, in a water bath and uh, came up with a really good yogurt. And they said, well, let's try selling your yogurt here. Somebody will buy it. (laughs) Right then a student co-op opened up, Willamette People's Co-op. So I would I would do the books, you know, the the payroll and the office managing and the uh, all that, and then I would put on boots and a white coat and go out and make yogurt in a little thirty gallon vat. And uh, the co-op bought our yogurt. It didn't have a name; it was just yogurt from Springfield Creamery. One day they called up to order some more, and she's manager Marlena from New York. <laughs> She called up and said, give me some of that Nancy's yogurt. It just got named for us. <laughs> you know, somebody bestowed that name. And, and the thing was, Chuck and Sue loved it. And uh, they named it that. In some ways, the yogurt was just the hottest new technology to come down the hippie pipeline. Richard Sutton would go on to work for the creamery. The yogurt was really special. There was nothing being marketed anywhere in the country like it as far as the the living cultures and everything. I could hear the reaction from people that I knew on the streets in in, uh, Eugene and the area around there, and from people that I knew from various other uh, commune farms. It was almost spoken of in reverent tones as though you were talking about something that was in the whole earth catalog. If you go back far enough, it carried a lot of cred. It really did. Lawrence Roberts is the author of the incisive book, May 1971, A White House at War, A Revolt in the Streets, and the Untold Story of America's Biggest Mass Arrest. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. He was spending the summer of 1972 in Eugene. I shared the feeling of a lot of folks who were coming out of college or in college at the time, which I was involved as a protester in the Vietnam anti-war movement starting in 1969, went to various protests. I was arrested as part of the biggest mass arrest in U.S. history in Washington in May of 1971, and a big attempt by anti-war groups to do a traffic blockade of the city to protest Richard Nixon and the the war. So this was a year later, I think, by then the, the particular kind of actions of going into the streets and protesting, carrying signs and picketing had pretty much faded away. People had felt it was not effective or they had just sort of moved on and, and, and turned more inward in this idea that the cultural part of things was where to, they should put their energies. The Oregon area reflected that. I mean, I think there were some people who were involved in, in politics, directly in politics, but most of the idea was let's just create something different. Uh, let's create an alternative. Everything was about alternative, alternative schools, alternative food, alternative music. The Springfield Creamery had figured out the alternative food, and now it was time to spread it to the world. It's one thing to operate a local creamery. It's another to manufacture a new product. There was no distribution chain to just get their yogurt into supermarkets. But there was an emerging network of natural food stores connected into the heady hippie underground. 
Nancy's Honey Yogurt found its first Bay Area representative via a distributor of rock magazines and underground comics. There was a, a great guy named Gilbert Rossborn who was uh, taking uh, comic books from, I get, I'm not quite sure whether they were published in Eugene and he hauled them down to the Bay Area and distributed, or if he did the other way, if he brought books from the Bay Area up to here. I think it must have been that way because then he was empty going back. It was a backhaul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to all those stores and all the natural food stores, and they're really longing for good products. Why don't I take the yogurt down? And that became the uh, original connection into the Bay Area with our yogurt going there. And eventually, Gilbert quit doing comic books pretty much and created a business called Natural Foods Express and did uh, distribution of uh, dairy products and other things and to the into uh, Marin County down to Santa Cruz all during the 70s. There were a lot of businesses like us who were creating new foods and all these natural food stores that were popping up everywhere needed things to put on their shelves and in their refrigerated cases. You know, we were taking it to local natural food stores in Eugene and gosh, we were making sometimes 200 gallons a day. In my book, From Head Shops to Whole Foods, part of the whole idea of the title is that there was kind of this universe of activist businesses, countercultural businesses that emerged in the late 60s. And there was overlap in different ways, uh, kind of this constellation of head shops, the comic book stores, the natural food stores. Maybe they didn't always sell each other's products, but there was a good chance they were often in the same neighborhoods or there was actual kind of cross-pollination, like you said. And that doesn't surprise me, especially not on the West Coast and especially not in college towns, right? So Springfield Creamery is basically right next to Eugene, right next to University of Oregon. And that's a big part of the story as well. But wait, there's more. partner was Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis? Yes, that's the other part of the story. His partner in Natural Foods Express was Huey Lewis. And Huey was, a, you know, the struggling... Uh, singer and and who sang at night and drove yogurt in the daytime. Huey always said that he wrote um, working for a living while he was driving their truck down to Santa Cruz to make deliveries. It was the windshield wiper. Please welcome Huey Lewis. We started a little Whole Foods distribution company based on Nancy's Yogurt. Our business was called Natural Foods Express. We started with Nancy's Yogurt, but we had all kinds of other natural foods as well. Huey often made the trip from the Bay Area to Springfield. Yogurt needs to be refrigerated, but it's quite stable, actually. So in the beginning, (laughs) truth be told, we would drive the truck up to Eugene, uh, it was nine hours to get up there. And we'd get up there about about nine or 10 at night and then load the truck and take a nap at, at Rosanna's house and then uh, get in the truck and drive to the Bay Area and then go to our various and and distribute it as well, same day, before, before we had the walk-in. Then we got the walk-in, then we could put it in the walk-in and then we got to ship it down after a while so we didn't have to drive up 
Clover was going during this period as well. I was doing this in the daytime and then gigs at night and uh, burning the candle at both ends, no question about it. Huey Lewis was and is a true member of the Creamery family, though didn't make it to the 72 benefit. I wasn't there, but we did a show for the Creamery, uh, and I can't remember when that was. They partnered up with a promoter, and we did a show and benefited them a little bit, and that was a really fun gig. Ken was on the farm, and Chuck had the Creamery, Chuck and Sue, and they're just the greatest people in the world. They're rock-solid Oregon people, and Nancy, you know, worked there forever, and they named the yogurt after her, and Rosanna, I think Rosanna had the fruit. I think Rosanna's idea was the fruit, and Rosanna now lives down, married a friend of mine, Wally Lourdeau, and lives in, in Marin County. I still see them, and I coach their kid. So uh, it's all pretty much family, you know, for me, but yeah, they're, they're just great people. He's not kidding. In 1993, Huey was participating in Twister, one of Brother Ken's stage productions, and the entire gaggle went to see the dead at Austin Stadium in Eugene, closing the circle with Huey's old yogurt route. They had a big gig in Eugene, and, uh, and I was there as part of uh, Casey's crazy entourage, and they, and they asked me to sit in. And I remember it was the first time I'd ever had in-ear monitors. The dead were, I think, the first people to do that. I guess I had a harmonica with me. So what do you got? We'll do something in the, in the whatever. And so I said, great. They gave me a microphone that was connected to an amplifier somewhere in the back line and of this enormous stage. I didn't know where the amplifier. They just kind of handed me the microphone and stuck these two things in my ears. And by the way, they had the system where they had in-ear monitors, but they also had a little button that you could push, which would defeat the in-ear monitors so they could talk to each other and say to the monitor guy, hey, I need a little more drums or I need a little more of this or whatever, and then let their foot unpress un the button and then it would go out through the microphone. So I'm hearing them talk at the same time I'm hearing music and I don't know where the music's from. It was the strangest notion ever. And I'm trying to play my harmonica and I can't tell if I can hear it or not. I hear this terrible sound and I realize Oh, shit, it's my harmonicas feeding back, right? And now I look in the back of the stage, and Jerry, who figured this out way before I did, is already back there with his back turned to the crowd in the very back of the back line, working with my, my amp, trying to get me nice tone. And he, and he did that for the whole song. I thought it was so sweet, man. Sorry, we had the timesheet set for the wrong decade. Let me just shake it. But the Creamery wasn't just yogurt. Some communities anchor themselves around music scenes or bookstores or bars. Springfield, Oregon got a health food store. Springfield didn't have a natural food store when they were all in Eugene. We thought, well, we could do that. We had a lot of people coming into the office and wanting to buy yogurt and so forth. And we really weren't set up to sell yogurt from the front office because it was about as big as a closet. So we just started putting together a, a natural a food store uh, where we had bulk food and binge, you know, just like the natural food stores looked. And it was called the Health Food and Pool Store. And the reason it was named that was because we had a wonderful pool table in that room for, in the, which was the break room for our employees. Nobody wanted to give up the pool table. We ended up building a big log platform because the room was really high ceiling and put the pool table up 
overhead on a platform. People could come up and play pool if they wanted. Uh, that's how my son and daughter became pool sharks at a very young age. And so anyway, the pool table was there for a long time. The store was delightful. Uh, the store was a wonderful gathering place for folks. We loved it. It was open until 1987 or so when actually the whole creamery moved over to our current location in Eugene. You could come in the store. The grains and all were stored in 10-gallon milk cans. And you could play pool for free. We had a big Fisher stove so people would stand around and talk politics. It was a hub of, of interest and community. It was a small community. You know, most, most people were pretty... Um, Let's see, we used to call them square, <laughs> straight, whatever the word is these days. Joshua Clark Davis. Why not have the yogurt, the organic food, and the antique billiard table all in the same place? I mean, we just watched Licorice Pizza, and this is kind of, you know, really appealed to me because it had some of this type of stuff. It's like the waterbed store, and just then the guy goes on to do the pinball shop, and it's... People were kind of mixing and matching these small business ideas in this period, not afraid to try new things and very much shaped by the counterculture. Even folks who weren't like totally embedded in it, they were kind of breathing that air. It was in the atmosphere. Opened in 1970, the health food and pool store quickly became a local hangout. David Coranda. It just became a, a kind of a natural gathering space. And that the, the yogurt was awesome and the people were awesome and 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 it wasn't very big. So you got to know people who went in there and they got to know each other and you saw the same people, etc. And so it was just very laid back. And unlike any other store, I think that you would naturally go into and certainly different than a place where you would go buy groceries or yogurt or something like that. Please welcome to the Deadcast, Ace Dead Freak, Strider Brown. I have to say that Eugene in 71 and 72 was you know, the closest I will have ever gotten to, let's say, the original Haight-Ashbury. And there was still, at least for myself, a certain feeling of innocence. Richard Sutton scored a job as manager at the health food and pool store. Before I went to the creamery, was working at the Kiva bookstore in Eugene, which was on the can on the road to the campus and learning all kinds of weird stuff, including how to throw tarot cards. So it's all kind of a blend. It all came together. The store launched far more than Nancy's yogurt. The health food and pool store was a place for people to to bring their small kitchen made products that were approved by the Department of Agriculture, of course. You have to be uh, certified, but you, it was a place for people to sell their stuff. The Kettle Chips guy was our was one of our first distributors uh, who took Nancy's yogurt up to Portland and down to Ashland. Well, first he started out, there weren't very good roasting nuts. So he came up with the idea that he would supply the roasted nuts to the stores and provide them with a peanut butter machine. And they, people could make it just like grinding your own coffee. You could make your own peanut butter. So kettle chips started out that way. And then he realized that there was only like Laura Scudder potato chips that he could maybe, he started making these trial batches, 
small batches of kettle chips and it grew from there. And uh, he was a dear, dear friend. Poolside Bakery was uh, Esther and a fellow who made granola in the, we had some uh, government ovens, some pizza ovens that we had bought on government surplus. So they started making granola in the back of the pool store and selling it uh, in the store. And uh, that turned it. So then uh, Golden Temple took over that and created their own line of, um, I think it's called Sweet Home Granola. Now you see it in the grocery stores in those milk carton shapes. Started at the creamery in the back of the creamery. Serrata Soy Foods, of course, is a local soy tofu company that made their first batch at the creamery. There's just lots of connections, natural food connections that the creamery has helped. There was more than yogurt at stake. It was an attempt to radically redefine the food market in the United States. But in launching a new yogurt, a new store, and helping to support a network of comrade food makers, the debts were beginning to pile up. It was a struggle. Nowadays, if you were a startup with a really good idea, you would seek out some investment money, you know, to help you get up and running. And that wasn't really available back then. That wasn't a thing people did. And so you just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, really. So we were making this great yogurt, probably one of the best probiotic yogurts in America, if not the best. And uh, we just needed to get, you have to buy containers and honey and milk and uh, labor, you know, that you have to try to make it work within that (laughs) cycle of sales and purchasing. So we were having trouble with going to uh, be unable to pay our federal taxes. Probably It was probably payroll taxes. And we needed some kind of good idea to pull us out of this dilemma. We didn't have any money. All we had was determination. We weren't going to quit. So we asked the Grateful Dead. I think maybe Jim Benny thought up the idea. What if the dead did it? benefit for us. It's kind of, okay, let's try. They have a connection to Ken and we can at least get an interview with them. <laughs> so Chuck and Bud and Black Maria. So Chuck Kesey, Ken's brother, Bud Haxby, Faye's brother, and Black Maria, one of the pranksters, drove down. And the dead were rather democratic, but even the roadies had a seat on the at the table where decisions were made. So they went down and proposed it, and their head roadie was a guy named Ramrod, and he was from Pendleton, Oregon. Ramrod had joined the Merry Pranksters during Ken Kesey's escape to Mexico in early 1966, before arriving at the Dead's house in the hate later that year with the message, Kesey sent me. I hear you need a good man. And he spoke up for us, and he said, these are good people. They need to be saved. This This is worth doing. And they agreed. In early September... They'd be setting off for a cross-country tour. But they did have a free weekend at the end of August. The band's August newsletter had tentatively announced a show at the Santa Barbara County Bowl on August 27th, but that evaporated, as gigs sometimes do, and the dead committed to help the creamery. Well, it wasn't unusual for the dead to play a benefit. It was slightly more so to play for an out-of-town organization. We had 28 days from the yes to... The date they picked. <laughs> the date they picked, which is a pretty phenomenal statement. And, I, and at that point, I had never been to an outdoor concert. 
Eugene, I think, had never had an outdoor concert. And so there was no concept of it. And so there was no prototype. There was nothing to copy. This is total invention on how to do this. They had a venue in mind, too, about 15 miles west of Eugene in the town of Venita. And like the Springfield Creamery, the old Renaissance fairgrounds were already home to an important local landmark and countercultural institution. What was then called the Oregon Renaissance Fair was founded nearby in 1969 and moved to its permanent home on the Long Tom River the following year. Larry Roberts. One aspect of the counterculture was this movement called the Free School Movement, which was a, a way, and the counterculture believed, you, you know, to set up a system of schools for their kids that weren't part of the, the system. And so these independent schools were popping up all over. And my project was to sort of study these schools. And the one I ended up going to visit at was a place called the Children's Community School, which at that time was located on a farm uh, not far outside of Eugene. One of the things they, that the people before me did to, to raise money for this preschool, for the Children's Community School, was to set up this annual event called the Renaissance Fair. We knew that property, that the fair had been there for a couple of years on that property. But it, it was rented. They, they leased, the fair leased the land for the fair. And so we went to the landlord and said, well, can we lease this field, this part of the field here for this concert for, you know, a couple of weeks. So we get it to, for, for this month, actually. And he said, sure. He was really nice guy. Like the health food movement, the Renaissance Fair as an institution has what might seem like surprising connections to the counterculture and to the dead's world specifically. Owsley Stanley and his crew of LSD makers were regulars at the Northern California Fairs. One of those associates and close friends, Bob Thomas, would do the final illustration for the dead's skull and lightning bolt logo, to bear specs, of course. He also played bagpipes in the Golden Toad, known to some as the Grateful Dead of the Ren Fair circuit. With no official releases, recordings are extremely rare and have only surfaced in the past few years. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. But while the Renaissance Fair evolved, the Oregon iteration became very much its own, and when changed their name to the Oregon Country Fair in 1976, after the California Ren Fair's threatened lawsuit because, essentially, the Oregon Fair wasn't Ren enough. In Venita, it wasn't so much about dressing in period garb and speaking in dialect, as it was about extremely heady craftwork, family-friendly circus flair, and getting deeply lost, in the woods or elsewhere. If you're interested in the history of Renaissance fairs, I recommend Rachel Lee Rubin's book, Well Met, Renaissance Fairs and the American Counterculture. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast, naturally. And by naturally, I mean organically. Shortly after I got there in June of 72, this was like a second or third Renaissance fair, which I attended, and it was an amazing, you know, event. And this was the same grounds, of course, where the Springfield Creamery uh, fundraiser was held, uh, you know, about six weeks later. It was this winding trail through the woods, beautiful woods of Oregon, with all these booths set up by people who were selling crafts and doing music or learning to blacksmith or showing you how to grow organic vegetables. 
and we had a booth for this free school I'm talking about that we manned. Lots of civilians came during the day. At night, there was just campfires. Like I said, everybody had guitars and mandolins and fiddles. And so it was like an all-night kind of counterculture camp with clouds of marijuana smoke and everything else. The 1972 iteration of the Oregon Fair took place from June 30th through July 2nd during an early summer heat wave. One history of the fair recalls the institution in 1972 of what became known as the Purple Sock Rule for Men. Let's just call that foreshadowing. The Oregon Renaissance Fair was a lot of cool things, but it definitely didn't resemble a rock festival, or even a folk festival. At that time, you couldn't rent a stage, and in, in 28 days, you could not rent a stage and get it there. We had to build a perimeter fence and then build a stage. So there were all these volunteer hippie carpenters and young people who were out there just making it happen. The creamery is good at engineering because it's a complicated machine, that creamery is. And we built a city in 28 days and had a concert. With a lot of help. With a lot of help. It was mostly volunteers. Almost everything was volunteers. Yeah. And the stage was built with volunteers. And, and in 28 days, you couldn't get a ticket printed either. So we had to make our own tickets. We used our yogurt cup labels as the tickets, and we just printed over them. The creamery staff just cranked out a ticket. Click, 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 click. They just knocked out a ticket. I think it was $3 or three fifty at the gate, and the tickets were printed on Nancy's yogurt labels. We, of course, didn't have enough money to even silkscreen our containers. They were pick-and-stick labels, and I think... Maybe the Kiva sold tickets, Sundance, the student union, and we had posters around town. So people came from all over. They heard about this concert from Seattle to California, you know, just came from all over to be there. And I think we sold about 13,000 tickets. There were, of course, posters. One of them featured intricate lettering, a clear glass milk bottle with a haloed head of a cow, and the word Renaissance misspelled. The art was by the hog farmer, Mary Prankster, and visual artist Paul Foster, then living in Springfield and doing occasional work as fall posters. Some nice wordplay on his name. The other poster was hand-lettered with a rapidograph by a creamery employee named Richard Sutton. I was doing the graphics uh, here and there, and they asked me to, I guess they asked me to do the poster, and I said, sure. I did a, uh, a couple of signs up on campus for restaurants. I did some small band local concert things and, and graphics that they used on drum heads and stuff. I had my trusty rapidograph and my India ink bottle. A lot of the illustration I did at the time, point by point by point by point on a big pad of vellum paper, which is like kind of like tissue, only really heavy so that you could do a lot of ink work on it, and then it was easy to put it over something else if you needed to, uh, to back it up. I hadn't really learned much about the graphic arts business, but I, I knew I liked to do illustrations. So you do what you do. I think I took the uh, skeleton, uh, I, I borrowed that, I traced it probably off a, an older dead album. At the natural food stores, I think, is where the posters all went up all up and down the coast. There was one guy decided that it was his job to hit every bar in Oregon. 
and walk into the bar with a poster and say, there's a Grateful Dead concert coming. And here it is. And off he goes. Johnny Dwork. This show was literally played off the grid on sacred land that had been inhabited by Native Americans for thousands of years on a brilliant summer day away from the psychically constricting forces of the default society paradigm that we all know uh, the Grateful Dead were trying to move away from, that the whole culture of the time was trying to move away from. There were no cops, no confining walls, no industry promoters. This confluence of expansive forces was both, I think, profoundly empowering and also really well-timed for the arc of their their career. The show existed almost entirely inside the emerging alternative society of which the dead were a part. That same summer, they were beginning to explore the idea of starting their very own record company and distribution system. It was do-it-yourself at virtually every level. But looked at another way, it's like a wholesome musical. To save the family dairy, the kids are going to get together and put on a show. Enter a film crew. The film now known as Sunshine Daydream was directed by John Norris and produced by Sam Field. Sadly, neither are with us anymore, but I did interview Sam in 2013 when writing my book Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. John Norris was the uh, instigator of the whole idea to film a concert. And uh, he had been a film guy in New York, did some stuff with WNET and uh, kind of was my childhood friend outside New York and uh, lured me to California originally, took me to my first lathered up Grateful Dead show and uh, got me on the bus. After trying to contact the Dead's management in February 1972, collaborator Phil Daguerre went to go see Jerry Garcia play with Merle Saunders and told him they wanted to make a movie. DeGuerre recalled to Blair Jackson in 1986, he seemed sort of bemused by the idea that anyone would want to make a movie about a bunch of musicians who stand on stage and stare at their guitar strings. Sunshine Daydream's filmmakers have passed on, but Adrian Moran both helped them restore and release the project, and also directed his own wonderful mini-documentary, Grateful Days. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. More than anybody else, Adrian is the keeper of the Sunshine Daydream flame. Europe 72 tour comes about, Sam Cutler calls them up and says, hey, guys, I think this is your chance. You know, this might be the one to, to, to come and check it out on. And they're like, well, you know, we'd like to come and sort of travel with you guys. But we really we really need to you know, do some more homework, we feel. In the spring, John and Sam headed to Europe and followed the dead on pretty much the entirety of the Europe 72 tour. Not quite riding with the band, but intersecting frequently. We included some of Sam talking about it in our Denmark episode last season though it's one of the many topics I wish I could ask him about more. And so it was while on that tour, I think, that like an uncle or something of Sam's died, left him just a little chunk of loot. Every day, things were looking more plausible. Sometime after they got back, it seems that documentarians Albert and David Mazels, famous for Gimme Shelter, had contacted the dead about making a documentary. Initially, they were told to talk to Norris, DeGuerre, and Field, who the band seemed to consider the band's film team. The Maisels fell out of the picture, and soon Sunshine Daydream was born. Earlier in July of that summer, the band did a Portland and Seattle uh, Paramount Theater uh, brief tour. And that was the first time I'd ever been to Oregon, uh, going to those shows. Uh, and 
like I say, Jan and I spent our youth in the New York area and then came to California in late 60s and found plenty to do around here without, uh, without really going very far. I got another call from Cutler saying, hey, this is really maybe the one, guys. I think you got to get up there. This is promising to be a pretty loose affair, and it's going to happen really quick. And we didn't know where or when the opportunity to film a concert would show up. Could have just as easily as easily been in the Bay Area or in, uh, in any other state. So it just sort of happened that... Uh, the opportunity was there, so uh, all of a sudden uh, we became familiar, and then we stayed and lived there for a year doing editing and uh, a lot of the post-production. The filmmakers connected with a group known as Far West Action Picture Services, with the excellent acronym of FWAPS, which I assume to be a Don Martin-style onomatopoeia for the sound of when a film reel runs out. Flap, flap, flap. Co-founded by Mary Prankster Mike Hagan, FWAPS was a heady, hippie-style film and television company doing local television and film work. With a team of John Norris, Phil DeGuerre, and Sam Field, they caught Underground America circa 1972 at perhaps its deepest. Cameras started rolling as the old-fashioned stage racing began. The other thing showing our uh, novice concert promotion side was that when we built the stage we didn't really take into consideration the direction we were facing the stage so actually the stage faced west and consequently the band had the sun in their face on a day that was over 100 degrees for the, at least the last half of the day maybe all day you know certainly in the as the sun got to that level in the sky it was where they were having trouble keeping their guitars in tune and and didn't think their music sounded very good and all of that a lot came from that <laughs> that position of the stage the volunteers the creamery rounded up for their stage racing and indeed much of the audience for the show came from the communes and alternative living situations in the area around eugene david caranda there were a number of different communes at that time, all around Eugene, and all of them had different things. One of them was related to food. One of them, re I remember, was related to Christianity, etc. Camille Cole. There were a lot of communes in the area. There was the Mud Farm, the Goat Farm, the Church of the Creative, uh, just a, all the hillsides around that area were, were dotted with various types of communes. And uh, people, we would go and visit each other, and uh, it was definitely a family. And not long after that, uh, I took up with a, I guess you'd call it a gypsy caravan, and we were the bus farm. You know, you can picture a fleet of Victorian houses uh, meandering down the highway, a house truck, Victorian houses on the back of flatbed trucks. We raised the roof on our school bus and extended the back end. So people would pull over and wave. And we took a cross-country trip, and we were on TV in Nashville. They took us up to Graceland in Memphis. We were on display at the New York State Fair. So there's a lot of adventures in there. Camille has a memoir coming out. The Midnight Show, Bohemians, Byways, and Bonfires. 
we've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. Founded the year before, the Hodad's Reforestation Cooperative was a worker-owned collective that very intentionally made literal roots in the area. Strider. The Hodads were absolutely their own. Certainly they were like a, uh, a cooperative uh, that was based, of course, on tree planting and other work in the woods. During one of the early country fairs, they were having some problems with the Hells Angels who wanted to take over the child care area and park their bikes there. So they asked the Hodads if they would do security. Plus, there were a lot of traffic jams up on the road. So the Hodads took over security. So in those days, the Hodads were sort of the savior. Working with Foreman Paige Browning of the Merry Pranksters, the Hodads also helped build the stage. Loosely, the Grateful Dead and the people who were part of the Grateful Dead family were part of that group as well. Even though the dead didn't specifically live in this area, there were people connected to them who did. And so the, those, the band were sort of peripherally uh, part of our community. One of those was the Church of the Creative. Richard Sutton of the Springfield Creamery lived there. I moved out to a commune in Cresswell. And actually before that, around the college, I got to know a guy named Gordon Adams. And his sister is mountain girl, Carolyn. It was a place called the Church of the Creative down in Cresswell. It was basically a mountain valley that uh, had been purchased and had an old farmhouse on it. But really, the idea was to go into the hills and build your own shelters and raise goats, which I found out I really like goats and we got along really well. We all took turns helping each other build and the construction work that we did. I remember meeting a guy who was putting up a really big house. It had at least three stories down the hill from the little cabin that I had. He was up there on the roof. Well, at the time, it was just rafters, balancing himself and making really, really intricate joint cuts with a chainsaw that he held in his hand. And the thing that got me about this is that I noticed his other hand didn't work. He was just balancing with his legs and cutting joints with a chainsaw. He turned out to be quite an interesting guy, actually. He was uh, well-known at the University of Oregon. He was uh, one of the people that uh, did a lot of theatrical work there. He was a great actor. Later, he and David Lynch met. And the one-armed man in Twin Peaks is that guy. His name is Al Strobel. And uh, he was... He's just a good buddy and taught me all kinds of stuff. The magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire, walk with me. Nancy remembers Al Strobel, too. His house, he built this really quirky house, uh, uh, an absolute hobbit house on that property down there. And it's still there. Weirdos and David Lynch fans of all stripes, this is crazy, but please welcome to the dead cast from Twin Peaks, Philip Gerard, a.k.a. Mike, the actor Al Strobel. I had a terrible car accident when I was 17 and uh, had the nerves from my left arm pulled out of the spinal column. Uh, and so I've been in excruciating pain all my life. But And I had a near-death experience during that. And... Uh, 
I fought like hell to come back here to live out this life. But I was only 17, and I figured there must be more. And there sure as hell has been. Which is one of the ways that Al ended up co-founding the Church of the Creative with Mountain Girl's brother, Gordon Adams. Al became a resourceful and creative architect. It was a very interesting adventure. I got to uh, build a thousand square foot cabin there that was remarkable, I think. The whole south side, two stories with with window. It had a beautiful view of the opposing little mountain across the valley. And then you went upstairs and there were the bedrooms up, up there, uh, about a half a story high and a little bit higher was the kitchen, which was a 12-foot diameter circle topped by a geodesic dome with glass panels. The hummingbirds just loved it. They thought it was a gigantic flower, and they kept getting trapped. Did Al see the dead and play a community role when they came through Vanita? Oh, yeah, you bet. We'll have more with Al Strobel next time. Though the commune scene might seem like it was on the far-out opposite end of the countercultural spectrum from the radical political left, there was at least some surprising crossover. Larry Roberts. One of the things that was kind of interesting in terms of the interplay between the political and the counterculture was that, even though I didn't know them at the time, some of the people who were underground, from weather underground and Black Panthers and stuff, were hiding out under assumed identities in these, in these communes. And one, one commune that I visited, some friend said, you've got to come meet the people at this place. It's very cool, which it was. But to get to it, you sort of wander down this path, and then there was like a small river or a big creek. And the only way to get access to the commune was to take a little zip line across the river. And I remember asking, what's the point of that? He says, well, if the cops come or the FBI comes, we'll have a little warning before they actually get to us. So I assumed that they had reason to not want the, the police to show up. There was one in Crow. There was a Rainbow family that was in Cottage Grove further south. Around that same time, we had a gathering in the Three Sisters Wilderness that was a lot of people that had that formed the Rainbow family. The pranksters had their own, let's say, call it camp. And the Rainbow family at the Rainbow Farm had their camp. But that when it came time to build the stage, that the Rainbow Farmers and the Pranksters collaborated. In these episodes, Strider is going to be our avatar for the Vanita benefit for the Springfield Creamery. He took a long route to get there, but a fascinating one that encapsulates the summer of 72 pretty well. Strider was a pretty serious East Coast dead freak. I'd been seeing the dead already for a couple of years, and... I'd gone to three of the Academy of Music shows, and so I was still at home, but getting ready to drive out west with three friends. I had been out there visiting my sister in Sausalito the summer before and up to Oregon to visit my brother the August before. Turns out Strider's the guy yelling for White Rabbit on the Berkeley Community Theater 71 tape added himself to a tradition we discussed at length last season. I made up my mind that as soon as I got out of high school in June of 72, I was moving out west to Oregon. I moved out of home right after high school 
graduation in June of 72. Uh, we headed out that first day from Connecticut, and we were somewhere on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and we stopped at a rest area, and there was a uh, like an old bread truck that on the side was painted Rainbow Family of Living Light, and uh, we were given uh, the old Rainbow Oracle. That was definitely a sign. We had planned on going to that first Rainbow Gathering when we had set out anyway. At a few points during the Vanita show, you can hear references to the Rainbow Farm. There is a poor man from the Rainbow Farm making his way out here today by panhandling a little money and got busted for it. Now the Rainbow Farm boys, they poor folks and they need money. So if any of you like to contribute for his $27 bail, come to the side of the stage where the Rainbow Farmers are. They'll accept it. Same rainbows. The Rainbow Gathering of the Tribes, organized in part by the Rainbows of Eugene, was scheduled to take place soon. Barry Adams, a.k.a. Plunker, had been going around and saying, we will meet at noon on 4th of July, 1972, at the top of Table Mountain in Colorado. And that was his mantra. He'd been a character at the Oregon Renaissance Fair, where Richard Sutton of the Creamery met him. I first met him somewhere, I think probably at the one of the Renaissance Fairs at uh, up at Venita. And uh, he was just sitting there. He had a thing that he was playing. It was a giant coconut shell with a hole in it, a bridge, a, a stick for a neck, and two or three strings. And he was just boink, 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 boink. And people were gathered around, and somebody would bring a drum. The next thing you'd know, something else was going on. And I, don't, I never even knew his last name was Adams. I only just knew him as Barry Plunker. The guy who gave us the copy of the Rainbow Oracle there at that rest stop in Pennsylvania, our first day west, he was an older guy who he had a long flowing beard and can't remember the exact clothing that he had, but he definitely had the look and vibe of somebody out of maybe the Old Testament or somewhere, somehow. We've posted a link to the original Rainbow Oracle at dead.net slash deadcast. Heads were to gather high on the mountain and ohm together until the magic happened and they summoned New Jerusalem and other heaviness. Strider and his friends had a long adventure and encountered many dead freaks en route at the Rainbow Gathering, and elsewhere. We're only going to hear the most abbreviated version. After all, we've got a dead show to catch. One of Strider's travel mates was Dan O'Heikinen. This part of their experience at the Rainbow Gathering is an instructive counterpoint to how the Springfield Creamery event wouldn't unfold. As soon as Woodstock happened, from that summer onward, the status quo establishment, the powers that be, the man, the pigs, however you want to put it, had decided that they were going to clamp down on this situation and smother it. And not only were hippies being beaten up everywhere, but hippie events were being quashed everywhere. A few summers earlier, 
He'd witnessed it firsthand at the Powder Ridge Rock Festival in Connecticut, which was to have included Sly and the Family Stone, Janis Joplin, the Allman Brothers, Joe Cocker, Van Morrison, Fleetwood Mac, and more. You know, Powder Ridge, when it was first planned, was going to be another Woodstock, and it was quashed. But I was there. That wasn't going to be happening at the first Rainbow Gathering. I've been navigating with a USGS topographical map since I was a 14-year-old Boy Scout, and I knew how to do orienteering and all that stuff. <laughs> Orienting with a map and compass, you know, using a silver compass, you know, all the whole, the whole nine yards. So I looked at my friends and I said, not to worry, I can get us into the site. It was an adventure unto itself. So uh, the four of us started towards the gathering and there was a, uh, a mountain that we had to go over. Yeah, that'll happen. It's an adventure we can't totally get into today, except to point it out as one of the types of worlds heads were creating that summer. Like the dead themselves, the Rainbow Gathering would be a thread of energy continued forward from the 60s. The Rainbow Gathering exposed Strider to new ideas and, of course, good old Grateful Dead freaks. I grew up as a Catholic and stopped going to church when I was 14 or something like that. You know, my parents were open-minded enough to realize that, you know, they couldn't force that on me. And But certainly uh, the insights that I was getting from Grateful Dead concerts, other concerts, the two times I saw the Jefferson Airplane in 1970, other bands, that was certainly the key towards uh, newer realities. And then when I got to the first Rainbow Gathering, I went from being, let's say, raised a Catholic to being somewhat agnostic. I don't think perhaps atheist, but I had a profound sense of a form of spirituality. And it took off from there, you could say. Strider and his friends made it to the Bay Area. We wanted to approach uh, San Francisco by way of uh, uh, Marin County, so we went across North Bay, Black Point, North Bay, and we wanted to go to the old, I believe it was uh, Billy Kreutzman's wife, Susala, had the store called Kumquat May, or I suppose a play on the words of Kumquat May. A couple of us bought those old you know, smiling Jack or steely, steely face uh, shirts that on the sides had marijuana plants. And then eventually to the Eugene area, where Strider met up with his brother and friends at a non-commune known as Additum. David Caranda had actually scored it via the Oregon Renaissance Fair. Strider's brother and I put up a teepee, and we bought a couple of teepees in Sacramento when we were leaving San Francisco. And we put up a teepee and put up a sign that's like, do you have a place for us to put this? And that's how we met people who um, gave us, we had 640 acres, no running water, no electricity, et cetera, on a, on a lookout point reservoir. And so we spent a summer out there doing that. Michelle Lefkowitz was an Additum resident too. We lived in the shack. We lived totally off the grid. No electricity, no running water, I think. If I recall, I think it was between him and I and a couple other dudes, we dug an outhouse and we used to cook on wood stove and, and 
wash or take a bath in a galvanized tub by the wood stove, really off the grid hippie shit. Sometimes in the summer out there at Addington, there'd be, you know, 15 people, maybe even more than that, running around nude. We'd live in teepees in the summer and we went to the sweat lodge. My living arrangement was uh, very unique. There was a path that uh, went out of the old logging road up to this one tiny clearing, and there was a double trunk vine maple tree that I had uh, created a, a rope ladder going up between the two trunks, and then 50 feet up in that tree, I had created uh, what we used to call in Connecticut a Sheffield net. And I took two poles and then I wove with a uh, nylon rope, basically a framed hammock. And the reason I knew it was 50 feet up in the tree is that I had a 50 foot rope that I dangled down and it just barely touched the ground. And it had its fantastic view. It was a good summer to be a dead freak in the Pacific Northwest. In late July, the band played two shows in Portland and two in Seattle. Strider and the gang went to both nights in Portland, of course. It was an awful place to go to a dead concert, though. I just remember, at least personally, like you had to sit in these fucking chairs. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, but nevertheless, it was a really good show. She wouldn't have that problem next time. A few days later... Back in San Francisco, the dead agreed to play for the creamery. Pretty soon, the big news found its way to the heads. Sometime in early August, Michelle Harvey, because she knew that I was a, a serious deadhead, dead freak, and she uh, said, hey, Grateful Dead are going to be playing at the, uh, out at the old Renaissance Fairgrounds towards the end of the month. And I was like, oh, whoa, uh, really? Usually, once a week or so, we'd go into the Springfield Creamery, and they had a pool table upstairs. So we would shoot pool, buy yogurt, hang out, who, whoever knew who would come in there. And then word started to spread one day, which led to this concert. I may have bought my ticket at the uh, Springfield Creamery and Pool Store, which was an amazing uh, institution in its own right. Poster artist and health food store manager Richard Sutton and his co-worker had an exhausting day leading up to the show. Just before the concert, we spent an entire day running around in his station wagon, gathering up all the stuff that the dead wanted in their backstage table spread and everything. So we were running running the errands, and uh, we we ran all over the town and got it all done and uh, came back and were so exhausted that neither of us could, could talk, stand to even sit and listen to music. So that's why we missed it. Well, maybe next time. We had a caravan, basically, that we drove out there on the morning of the concert, early morning of Benita on August 27th. 1972, Michelle had this beautiful old, I uh, believe, GMC panel truck that was painted orange. A bunch of us, I think my brother, his wife, Michelle, David, myself, 
uh, may have been a couple other people. We rode over in that, and then right behind us was uh, uh, Glenn and Odie, and uh, we called them Whammo Glenn and Whammo Odie because we were doing playing frisbee a lot. And we had this thing in Connecticut before where somebody like go Whammo and then like throw you the frisbee. There were two parts. One was, yeah, we'll do whatever we can to support the creamery because of what it's become for, in a sense, for the community. And then let, we got to go see the dead. And, and so it just felt so impromptu. It was like, if there wasn't much notice, there wasn't much planning for it. It was just like, yeah, let's go. Next thing you know, the road's packed and we're hanging off the back of trucks and, and uh, sitting in the back of pickup trucks and just lined up. So we drive over in the panel truck and then we start getting into the uh, traffic coming out of Eugene and it was, uh, we crawled along, you know, at a snail pace. And then we finally made it to uh, the Renaissance Fairground area and parked and nobody was even taking tickets. I think most people that came probably had a ticket, but they certainly didn't have to turn them in or prove it because there was nobody there. But that was, it all, you know, that's the way it came out. <laughs> a few days later, the Oregon Daily Emerald estimated the crowd at around 25,000. Sam Field. There is a site with open fields, which was great for parking, and then there is a whole network of trails that are in and amongst trees with occasional widening out. And so there was a place for shade. Larry Roberts. I don't even really remember the traffic jam. A couple of my friends from back east had, had shown up um, luckily a few weeks before, so I brought them along and uh, my new girlfriend, and we knew it would be a popular thing, of course. So we got there early. We staked out some shade, which was a little hard to come by, under some trees to the I think you're facing the stage. I was on the left. Yeah, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing, except I was theoretically supposed to be collecting the money from ticket sales and so forth, and actually being sure my kids and everybody else's kids were kind of collected, or at least we knew where they were. When you put on a concert, you don't have a chance to enjoy it. <laughs> you're putting out fires and running around and worrying about everything yeah. and checking on people. Mary Prankster Ken Babs was handling MC duties. All right, all right, all right. For all you people with kids, don't forget the kids' tent down there. Mercy and Morgan, two little girls are there now lost, looking for their mommies and daddies. At the kids' tent down there, the red striped awning. First up, starting in the early part of the day, were the new Riders of the Purple Sage. This song asks the musical question, what the fuck's going on here? Rider set was released in 2004 by Omnivore Recordings, titled Field Trip, Vanita 82772. 
Buddy Cage had replaced Jerry Garcia on pedal steel in late 1971. The band released Power Glide in March 1972 and had been touring heartily ever since. They crossed paths with the dead in Europe, then on their way home headlined two nights at Carnegie Hall, the small room, and a ton since, including shows with the dead at the Hollywood Bowl and the Berkeley Community Theater just a few days earlier. Don Witten. I actually listened probably more to uh, new writers at that time. We, I remember listening to them on my uh, eight-track cassette on the way up in my little um, orange uh, Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> but then, surprise, there they were. I don't think they are listed on the poster. Sing me a rainbow, shine me a diamond, and drop in the sea, and the old Sometime during Rainbow, a parachutist landed near the stage. Wow! It's the first time I said drop in and see me any old time and somebody's done it here. I don't know. Well, I didn't have anything against the dead. I, I liked their music, but I wouldn't consider myself a deadhead at that point. But yeah, I got on the bus that day. <laughs> Dan O'Heikinen. During the new Riders show, that was, you know, before things had gotten really, really hot, that was when I was down in front. And I looked up back behind the stage when the new writers were playing, and who did I see but Jack Cassidy hanging out with Phil Lesh, cracking a bottle of Heineken's and smiling. And, uh, you know, if anybody's ever seen Jack smile, Jack Jack's smile just lights up the whole world when he smiles. Oh, Jack Cassidy's here. With the help of new writers leader Marmaduke, Ken Babs offered a public service announcement. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's time I return to your local stations for an announcement from our sponsor. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Today's program has been brought to you by ST, standing for Salt Tablet. Now, it's been recommended by our sponsor that everybody take one or two, and he's going to give them away free. Uh, I'm dehydrated by Cadbury. Give him a salt tablet, someone, please. Salt. The water is all drained from my body. I'm replacing it as fast as I can. It just doesn't do any good. All righty, already. So, the salt tablets. Over there at the White Bird Tent is where they're at. Oh, radio, the White Bird Tent, run by the White Bird Clinic. One of the dead's few previous out-of-town benefits had been for the White Bird Clinic in early 1971. Well, okay, so in the meantime, when he's changing the tube and the amplifier, you got to watch out for the blue acid with the white stars on it that's shaped like a little pyramid of uh, zyconomies over there in Egypt with a white eye in the middle. Uh, it kills you. In Veneta, White Bird acted as the freakout tent, but they've continued to provide righteous health services to the people of Lane County. The, the, the new writers are taking a slight break, and boy... All of a sudden, a train, there was a train track right next to the Veneta Fairgrounds. And all of a sudden, the train starts going by. And the crowd goes wild. The crowd is jumping up and down and hooting and hollering and waving their hands in the air. And they're, and they're doing that pulling motion, which you do to get the guy to pull on his horn. 
And of course the guy pulled on his horn and we could all we could all see him. I mean, there he was. It was like Casey Jones was right there in the flesh. And he was looking down on us all from this railroad grave with a great big smile on his face. Give or take the intensifying heat and the blue acid, the vibes were pretty solid. Everybody find a cool spot and get hydrated. We'll be back in 15 minutes. And by 15 minutes, I mean next week. See you then. Thanks very much for tuning in, and huge thanks to our guests in this episode, including David Lemieux, Johnny Dwork, Chuck Kesey, Sue Kesey, Joshua Clark Davis, Nancy Hamron, Richard Sutton, Larry Roberts, Huey Lewis, David Caranda, Strider Brown, Sam Field, Adrian Marin, Camille Cole, Al Strobel, Dan O'Heikinen, Michelle Lefowitz, and Don Witten. We have a bunch of great episodes planned for Season 6, so make sure to subscribe wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Keep in touch with us by signing up for the official Grateful Dead email list at dead.net, and please keep those stories coming, especially any about Madison Square Garden in 81, 82, or 83, by recording yours at stories.dead.net. See you next episode. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.